0: Hello, and welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, how would you like to go to work every day knowing it was your job to raise two million animals on a farm in Long Island Sound? Well, that's just what my guest Mike Gilman does. He's one of the partners in a Madison, Connecticut-based aqua farming operation, Indian River Shellfish, which raises oysters for people to eat. I could say it's a whale of a story, but instead I'll just say, stay tuned for The World is His Oyster. Mike Gilman. Judge him from his younger years and you might not see the type of seafaring boat captain type that you'd envision when you're thinking of an oyster farmer in Long Island Sound. It's true that Mike grew up on the water in West Haven, Connecticut, but his family didn't have a boat.
1: I grew up fishing and crabbing from every dock and pier that that we had. My business partner is actually the exact opposite. He grew up from a kid lobstering, so he was on a boat his entire life so when we came together we we had a perfect combination
0: his business partner george harris grew up nearby in Brantford. well now the two of them have their business in madison indian river shellfish some people plot and plan their path to a business venture but mike says he and george who are related by marriage just jumped into it after a family get together one day
1: we were just having this kind of conversation I think it was like a birthday party or something like that. And it was, let's look into growing oysters. Let's at least see what it's like. Would we be interested? And so my partner, is. uh, if he's going to do something, he's going to get on the phone and he's going to do it immediately. So we had our first lease probably a month later. To be fair,
0: it wasn't completely out of the blue. Even though Mike hadn't spent a lot of time on the water in his youth, he had gone into marine science, He was working at the Cedar Island Marine Research Lab in Clinton. There, he was involved in a project with state and local governments, as well as the prestigious Massachusetts marine group known as Woods Hole. He was helping them study disease-resistant oysters. They were trying to come up with hybrid breeds that had been exposed to some of the bad oyster diseases to try and help them develop immunities. George had spent much of his boat life pursuing lobsters and snails. So between Mike and George, they didn't have any specific business experience to go by, particularly in this new Connecticut industry of aquaculture. So this would be a case of learn-as-you-go. Well, what they knew for certain was they both had an interest in staying on the water and trying to make a living of it. Well, the type of oyster that Mike and George grow is known as the Eastern Oyster, Native Americans harvested the eastern oyster in the Sound long before white settlers arrived from Europe in the 1600s. And shortly after they did arrive, overfishing became a problem. By the early 1700s, Stonington and Groton had to pass laws essentially regulating oyster harvesting, saying where you could harvest them and at what time of year. Both of those towns are located in southeast Connecticut on the Rhode Island border, near where Long Island Sound opens up into the Atlantic. The major oyster capital of Connecticut in the 1800s was New Haven. In fact, by 1858, New Haven was the oyster capital of the United States. According to a great article by Doy Boyle for ConnecticutHistory.org, Just before the Civil War, Long Island Sound was teeming with 250 schooners that were delivering two million bushels of oysters to New Haven shops every year. Bridgeport and Norwalk also developed as major centers for oystering. In fact, the first trains that took materials from Long Island Sound inland included oysters destined for restaurants and shops. They'd keep them cold using blocks of ice with sawdust between the blocks to slow down the melting process. Oystering has been so important to Connecticut history that in 1989, the state legislature designated the eastern oyster as, you guessed it, the state shellfish of Connecticut. Well, as important as oystering is to the state, it is not an easy life. Mike says he gets up at the crack of dawn during the months of the year when the oysters are growing and need tending, loading up his boat early in the morning.
1: Fill up the work boat with as many oysters uh, and from the particular section of the farm that we decided that we were going to work that day.
0: Keeping oysters free of bacteria is the critical component of business success. Mike and George's oyster farm is just off the coastline of Madison and Clinton, right near Hammond State Park Beach. That's farther out and away from the more congested areas near Greenwich, Norwalk, Stamford, Westport, and Bridgeport. Sewage treatment plants in those towns and cities dump right into the Sound. So oyster beds and oyster harvesting aren't allowed in many of those locations. Mike says they have to bring the oysters from the farm back to shore. There they separate the ones that have grown to the right size from those that still need a little bit more time growing. What's the right size? Well, Mike says a lot of restaurants like to serve what's known as the boutique oyster. It's
1: this kind of small little two and a half to three inch kind of mouth sized um, just enough to get kind of a really good taste, but not enough to kind of have a meal out of it. That's a really big part of the industry.
0: But just like any business person who needs to know their customer, Mike says the right length of the oyster varies depending on the kitchen.
1: A lot of restaurants, depending on where you are, they like just that three inch oyster. Some places like bigger, some places like smaller. Um, It depends on kind of who's cooking it and how they're How they're working with
0: it. Now after the marketable oysters are separated from those that are still too young, the young ones are returned to the farm so they can grow some more. And even though the water at Mike's oyster farm is cleaner than the cities closer to New York, he still faces an additional step for the mature ones. He has to take them to yet another location in Long Island Sound, where the water is even cleaner. And he has to leave them there for a couple of weeks before they can be marketed. Yet another critical priority factor is to keep oysters chilled once they're removed from the water.
1: Refrigeration is number one, two, three, four, five uh, in regards of successfully harvesting shellfish and making it possible to be edible. You cannot cause uh, illness.
0: Within four hours of harvesting, oysters have to be at 50 degrees or colder until they're sold. Mike says they keep their oysters at a little below 40 degrees. So important is this factor that it even drives his go-to-market process.
1: If I sell them directly to a restaurant, I'll walk them into the cooler or uh, I'll have oysters picked up to go to a wholesaler and the refrigerated truck will show up. So they'll go from my refrigerator directly into the refrigerated truck.
0: While pollution is one major factor impacting the oyster industry, Mike says climate change is another one. It's impacted the entire shellfish industry dating back to the 1990s. The lobster industry in Connecticut crashed twice, once in the 1990s and then again in the 2000s. The water became too warm, and it stressed out the lobsters. For Mike, warmth introduces yet another big and important challenge. It causes the young oysters they buy at about five months old to grow too rapidly.
1: So we buy our oysters from a hatchery. I receive them um, every summer and we grow them in our own aquaculture system.
0: The problem is the warmer the water, the faster they grow. Algae grows more quickly in warm water and oysters eat algae. When there's more algae to eat, well, the oysters grow faster. And as we said, he buys them at five months old. So when the water is warmer, he can grow them to the coveted three inch length in just one year. Now, that may sound like a good problem to have, except for just one thing. Optimally, you want to serve an oyster so that when it's shucked, the shell doesn't crumble in your hands. Mike says oyster shells thicken with age, and one year isn't always good
1: enough. So my biggest challenge is actually slowing them down so they have enough time to um, have a thick hardy shell that when shucked isn't going to shatter in somebody's hand
0: cold water oysters from his competitors in maine and around cape cod are usually three years old with well-developed shells and the other problem caused by warm water is that it leads to ocean acidification well that actually removes some of the materials that oysters and other shellfish need to harden their shells well as interesting as all this is i find the really fun part about aquaculture to be the actual workings of an oyster farm. Just what is an oyster farm? What does it look like? How does it work? When the lobster industry crashed twice in Connecticut, state officials began to push aquaculture. Well, it's a whole new way of growing plants and animals underwater. Mike and his business partner, George, are some of the industry pioneers here in Connecticut. After the famous family birthday party, when George quickly set out to lease some land, what he actually leased was some space in Long Island Sound. If you've ever been to Hammonasset Beach State Park, the oyster farm is just to the east of the beach toward Rhode Island near the famous Lobster Landing Restaurant in Clinton near Cedar Island. For $10 to $30 an acre, you get the exclusive rights to shellfish in that area. Well, you have to mark off the area with buoys. And for that, they had to go up to Gilman, Connecticut, which is near Norwich. That's where the namesake of the town of Gilman, the Gilman Company, which is no relation to Mike Gilman in our story, makes ocean-worthy buoys.
1: They just make big buoys. Uh, For us, we will drive up there and we'll order specific big marker buoys that say caution gear area or things like that. And they have to be placed a certain distance away from the oyster gear. Then
0: Mike and George had to buy oyster cages to place in the water where the oysters grow. Well, it turns out that the same area they leased was the area that a lot of people in Clinton like to use for water skiing.
1: Which is super dangerous. These cages are three feet by three feet by three feet. They're these big boxes and they probably weigh, they could weigh 700 pounds, maybe even more sometimes when they're filled with mud. And as Mike aptly notes, that's got all the
0: makings for a disaster. You
1: hit one of those, it's not gonna be good for the boat or the person.
0: So try to picture this. The Indian River Shellfish Company uses 500 to 600 cages, each the dimensions and weight that Mike laid out just a second ago. And each cage has, depending on the age and the size of the oysters inside them, between 700 oysters and several thousand oysters per cage. Then there are the large buoys marking off where the cages are. Those cages sit on the bottom of Long Island Sound. But just off the coast of Madison and Clinton... The depth of those cages vary.
1: You can see our cages at low tide, so it probably ranges from one foot to probably, I don't know, six feet, seven feet, depending on the time.
0: It's when the cages are just barely below the surface and not readily visible that it's particularly dangerous to try to water ski there. Oysters are so popular that it's even led to poaching in many instances on Long Island Sound over the years. Mike says he realizes the potential for that.
1: In the summer, I can sit there and watch the kayakers and canoers going through the farm. And at low tide, they can very easily kind of manipulate a cage and grab a few oysters. I've never seen it. I can say that I don't think it's ever happened.
0: Yet just one more thing to watch out for in a day's work. Well, building on that popularity, though, Mike thinks that there's a lot more potential to raise up Connecticut's oyster industry once again it would take some creative marketing. For example, take the main attraction, the Eastern Oyster. There are only five species of oysters in the world, and the Eastern
1: Oyster is one of those five. So there's a thousand different varieties of the Eastern Oyster, but they're all the same species. They're just grown differently and in in a different place.
0: He draws a clear analogy to the wine industry.
1: You can have a Pinot Noir from five or six different um, vineyards in California and you can have one from Calif- uh, from Australia and you can have one from Oregon, Washington, but they're, they're all the same Pinot Noir grape. Naming their oysters was
0: something that Mike and George were just a bit too busy to deal with at first. They were so focused on fulfilling their many orders that it actually took some prompting to get them to give their product a name.
1: One of our wholesalers said, you know, you should probably name your oyster um, because when we're trying to sell it, it's just this plain white bag and we really don't know what to do with it.
0: And so they did, leaning on the popularity of the Hammonacid State Park Beach right near their oyster farm. Their product is called Hammonacid Points. Mike says the state has a website that features homegrown farms, the ones actually on dry land, that draws visitors to them. He notes that there are co ops and growers' associations for other industries, but not for oystering. Even the wine industry has their Connecticut wine trail.
1: I've advocated for a, an uh, oyster trail, which every other state has. Maine has one, Rhode Island has one, um, where you can go and explore these places. We don't have one. And because
0: they don't have that, most people don't know anything about Connecticut's rich oystering history. Or that there's still a huge oyster operator, one that dwarfs all the others, including Mike and George's. It's based in Norwalk, and it's called Cops Island Oysters. It's run by Norm Bloom. He's a fourth-generation oyster farmer in Connecticut. Well, incidentally, Mike will be the first one to call his and George's own operations small. But don't mistake that for having pride in all they've accomplished. They sell every oyster they raise, and they're now getting into related shellfish businesses as well. So just how many oysters do Mike and George have on their small aquaculture oyster farm?
1: I would say there's on average 2 million oysters on the farm at any time at different different age levels.
0: And from the last but not least department, Mike says he says aw shucks every day. And some days even a little worse. that's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Mike Gilman of Indian River Shellfish in Madison, a pioneer in Connecticut's thriving new aquaculture industry. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. And also in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at CT. I'd love hearing from you, and you can always send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you like what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. (music) Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.